0: Welcome to the 10th episode of Far From Home, a podcast that encourages biblical perspectives on immigration and inspires faith in action. I'm your host, Mabel Ninan, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Malcolm McKinnon, an immigrant from the UK, is our guest on this episode. He's a pastor, an author, and an artist who gave his life to Jesus in his early 20s when his life was headed down a destructive path. He later spent some time working as an artist as well as a volunteer youth pastor in the country of Tenerife, where he faced a financial crisis. But his faith was strengthened, and he became emboldened to serve God when he saw God provide for him in miraculous ways. Malcolm married Donna in 2007, and through a series of divinely orchestrated events, the couple felt led by God to move to the U.S., So in 2011, they packed their bags and emigrated to California, where Malcolm began working with a church. He talks about the cultural differences between the US and the UK and what he likes about living in the US. He also shares the story of his children's adoption and how the challenges Donna and he faced have stretched their faith. Toward the end of the episode, we take a deep dive into Malcolm's artistic process And if you're an artist, you will enjoy this part of our conversation. The common thread I saw run through this episode is this, God knows what we lack and he will provide for us. I hope this episode reassures you that our God is a good, good father who is perfectly capable of taking care of all our needs. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, could you please share it with a friend today? We would like to reach more people with our message and you can help us do that. Also join our private Facebook group to discuss podcast episodes and to watch exclusive extra clips. All you have to do is log into your Facebook account, search for Far From Home Podcast and then send us a request to join. I look forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. Welcome to Far From Home with me, Mabel and your host. Our guest today on this episode is Malcolm yeah. McKinnon. He's a fellow author. We met at the Mount Hermon Christian Writers Conference in 2018, and I cannot believe it's been so long. <laughs> we both connected also because we realized we live in the same area, Northern California, and we are part of a group of Christian writers that meets monthly here in the Bay Area. So Malcolm is a man of many talents who's focused on serving God. He's someone I admire and respect a lot, and I'm excited to talk to him today about his experience as an immigrant. Malcolm came to Felton, California in September 2011 from England with his wife Donna to set up uh, various youth and children's ministries. As an artist and ordained Baptist minister, Malcolm uses his artwork to design and communicate bible lessons in both churches and schools he and his wife have adopted two wonderful children jonathan and asia he loves to paint make movies and write and is currently working on a wide variety of writing projects ranging from theology to sitcom scripts i don't know how he does that but (laughs) that's him and if you'd like to watch him teach these videos check out his youtube channel Look for Big Mac sixty three. That's the handle of his YouTube channel, and it's a Mac is spelled with an B I G M A, a L C sixty three. Welcome, Malcolm.
1: Thank you very much. That's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me on the on the podcast.
0: So let's start with your uh, childhood. Uh, you were born in the UK and raised oh. in the UK. Um, can you share a favourite memory of your childhood or even uh, your young days?
1: Yeah, I was born just to the east of London in a county called Essex. I was the youngest of four kids. We had a pretty stable and happy childhood. We weren't necessarily Christians. I don't think we were the worst pagans in the street either, but we just were a regular family. And we went to good schools, but we didn't go to church really. I think I was pushed into Sunday school for a couple of years, but against my will. <laughs> I shouldn't say that now, should I, as a children's father? <laughs> but at the time it meant nothing to me. But uh, yeah, I remember when I was nine, I had this great I was to call this the greatest day ever because my mum had a colleague who was a lot younger than her. She was in her mid to late twenties. And I was nine, but I still had a bit of a crush on this lady and she was beautiful. And then one day she said that she would take me up to London for the day. Now I remember the day so clearly because it was the cup final day, the, the soccer cup final. <laughs> and my My team were playing in the final. So I was a bit conflicted because part of me wanted to watch the game and part of me did want to go to London. Anyway, then she turns up on the day, but I didn't know that she had a boyfriend. And so I was pretty upset about this. But it turned out he was such a great guy. His name was George and he had this open top sports car. So we drove like the wind up into London. He took us to Battersea Funfair, which was at the time like this huge funfair in London. And he was like this bottomless pit of cash <laughs> and uh, very different from my dad. So <laughs> I was thinking halfway through the day, I wondered if these two could adopt me. but. Uh, no i did have a happy childhood but we just had this wonderful day and then we went to the fun fair we went to the cinema we they took me out for pizza i would never had pizza before and then i found he bought an evening paper and we found out that my team had won the cup the only time they ever won it and my favorite player scored the goal yeah that was a pretty amazing day when i was nine yeah
0: thanks for sharing that it's (laughs) interesting the kind of things we remember Mm, at different points in our childhood that was so interesting so tell us what brought you to the U.S. Why and when did you make the move?
1: So Donna and I got married in 2007. Uh, for the year before we got married, uh, she worked as an exchange teacher over in um, Santa Clara. Now, she'd done this before in 98, where she'd done an exchange year where a teacher from America came to England, and then she spent a year in a Santa Clara school. So she had this connection with the area. and. To be honest, we weren't quite sure where our relationship was going the year before we got married. So she, I had slightly cold feet. So she said, look, while you're trying to figure this out, I've been offered another year in America. And as soon as she went, I I remember finding myself in this terrible situation where I was leading a ministry group in Africa on a safari. (laughs) And it was like the worst trip ever. And I kept thinking, who do I want to talk to right now? Who, Who do I want to pour my heart out? And it was Donna, and I kept calling her. And then I said to her, look, I know that we weren't quite sure where this was going, but I want to marry you. So she said, okay, that's fine. And she agreed. And then we'd already got engaged. So anyway, I came to visit her a couple of times while she was here on that year. And while we did that, we went walking in Big Basin. And there was a church in Felton that we thought, let's go to this church first. And so we went there and they said that they were looking for... At the time, we, they weren't asking things like that, but they were just... i said, you, you'll get a lot better teaching at this church that you're at here than the one that you've been currently attending. So we, she carried on going to that church, even though she was living in Los Gatos. So she, she'd drive half an hour down to this church every Sunday. And then when I came to see her again in the April, before we got married she was really established in that church she'd got to know a lot of people so then i got to know them we got married in the july of that year we came back for a honeymoon and and we built up a relationship with that church and and over the next couple of years they were explaining to us that they really needed somebody to do youth work and children's work and sunday school and all the things that i do back in england so i said uh, yeah That would sounds great, but we've both got jobs at the moment in England. Now, we were renting, so we didn't own any property. And then both of our jobs finished at the same time. And it just felt like such a clear call uh, that we were to come to America. So the people in Felton all said, wow, you guys are taking such a big step of faith. But I'd moved around a lot in my youth. I used to work as a portrait artist, and so I used to follow the work. So I'd I'd worked for the summers in England. And then I'd go to a country called Tenerife and I'd work the winters over there. So I was used to moving and I was used to living on not much. (laughs) So we moved and um, that was what brought us over. So it was a bit of a step of faith. They said, look, we'll give you a house. There's a house on the property. We'll cover your medical insurance. Because I thought, that's not much until I realized how much it was. (laughs) Uh, But we didn't come here to earn any money. We just thought this is going to be a fun adventure. And And let's see what happens. So Mm -hmm. the church received us very well. And it wasn't long before I proposed this idea that I introduced a children's talk into the service, which they'd never had. So I was doing a visual children's talk every week, which meant I had to design all this stuff. Donna couldn't work for three years until she got a green card. And then finally, after three years, she got a green card and then she was able to work as a teacher. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that was indeed a big step of faith. Let's go back a little bit. How did you get there? that point in your faith where you could trust God so much, because you said in your childhood, you were not really a Christian. So how did that happen?
1: That, so I I say grew up in what what was felt like a stable family. And when I was 15, my mum died, very suddenly, she had a heart attack and died. And that really threw my world, I think. And I just went in a bit of a spiral. Because I think what I lost when my mum died was that there was that person looking out for you and that you were accountable to wasn't there anymore. And so I I drifted a bit because I was interested in art. I ended up at art college and art college in those days was a place where drugs were going on more so than anywhere else. So, and I lost all my reasons to say no. When I was younger, I'd always say I'm not going to get involved in stuff like that. But suddenly it didn't seem such a big thing to say no anyway. Short story was I overdosed one day at a party, and I thought I'd gone mad, and I was terrified. I thought I was actually going to die and go to hell. And for somebody who'd never had a faith before, this was very weird. So I started praying in the streets. I was 22, and as I prayed, I I didn't even know how to pray. I kept trying to remember the Lord's Prayer from my youth, and I could hardly remember any of it. I was saying things Mm. like, Our Father, who art in heaven something about trespasses amen and then i kept repeating it and the more i repeated it the the more i remembered bits more of it and for about two hours in the street i was trying to remember this and i just felt like god got his hand on me and just wasn't letting me go and that was such a traumatic experience that it it shook me up massively and made me ask questions about what i was doing with my life and, and where my life would end up and it was quite a rude awakening to spiritual things and then. Six months went by and finally I met this guy who I was working as a season as a portrait artist and this guy I'd known who'd been a punk he'd been a poet suddenly walked up to me one day looking completely different smiling which he'd never done before (laughs) and I said to him hello Pete what's up with you and he said to me he said he said I've been born again and it was like again it's hard to describe this but it was like this electric shock went through my body when said that almost as if someone was saying to me you want to listen to this guy because he's going to tell you how to find a way so anyway that weekend I I talked a lot to him he didn't make a lot of sense to be honest but you could tell Mm -hmm. something happened to him he kept bursting into songs that he'd written (laughs) (laughs) I'd be honest they were some of the worst songs I've ever heard but he was so enthusiastic and I kept wanting to say "Look, stop singing songs just tell me what to do Anyway, I got back to my hometown, it was the end of my season, and um, I met some people from the Salvation Army, and uh, I started talking to them, and they led me to Christ that same day. Massive change in my life, just, it was a shock to a lot of other people as well, big shock to me too, shock to the girl I was going out with at the time, and I knew I was different. And then, so my whole work ethic changed, my whole attitude to life changed, I just knew I'd been forgiven, and I didn't really want to then go and mess it up again, like, When Mm. the slate gets wiped clean, you don't want to go and do something to spoil it. And then I I found myself in this country called Tenerife, uh, which is one of the Canary Islands. It's owned by Spain, but it's off the coast of Africa. And I worked there for four winters as an artist. But my being there coincided with this Europe-wide recession. No one had any money. So I thought it was going to be great to make a living, easy just sitting there drawing people, but nobody had any money. And making ends meet was incredibly difficult. And there must have been, I would say, 30 occasions in the first two years where I had less than a dollar to my name, total. Mm. And I kept thinking, well, this is it. I'll have to borrow the money from home to get a flight home and just call that a day. Meanwhile, I was working for the church as well. I was, I'd was, i become their kind of youth pastor or their youth leader but it felt that God kept me there and and I kept seeing his provision in in remarkable ways how he kept just as you think the money's about to run out it's it's like the 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 story with the oil and the flour there was just enough for one more day one more week money would come in the weirdest ways and it would be the exact money that you needed to pay for it and and when that happened over and over again I just started to think and God will keep me here until he wants me to go and it was such a learning experience, and I, I suddenly developed this real desire to serve God through it. And, and so I think and your faith
0: I, was strengthened, right? Oh, yeah,
1: I just mm-hmm. love that. Whatever circumstances I'm in, we have a God who says he'll provide, and he means and with, it. You know? Yeah,
0: <laughs> and with every experience like that, our faith is strengthened so we can take the next big step of faith, which stretches our faith even more. Yeah, yeah. so now. Back to your story, Donna and you moved to the US. Could you tell us some of the differences you noticed culturally coming from the UK and America?
1: I think culturally, yeah, of course, there are differences. I think it's easier coming from a country like England because there are similarities. I would imagine it's very different if you're coming from an African country or an Asian country. But coming from Europe, especially England, because straight Mm -hmm. away we have the same language. So there's no language. You wouldn't think so, but... The language can be different sometimes. But culturally, we love it here. It's been a very positive experience. I think we like the the positivity of people. And there is a cynicism sometimes in England, which is not always a good thing. England feels like a slightly oppressive nation sometimes. It's very crowded. I think I like the space here. I definitely like the weather. I love the fact that we can do so much stuff outdoors. So there's all those factors my wife when she finally became a teacher here realized that she was able to earn so much more than she was in England plus Mm -hmm. the fact that a teacher was given more respect than they were in England she wasn't given all this tons of homework that she had to do or in England you could often have these government inspectors could come in at the drop of a hat and just yeah none of that so she liked it and and I don't think you can ever state how good it is to wake up every day and and the sun shining.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, at least in California where well, we live. Maybe right. not
1: this, maybe not this winter, but most winters yeah. <laughs> things have been remarkable. And uh, yeah, so we definitely noticed that because w- we thought we'd come here for two or three years. We thought we'd just see how we go. We, we were ready to go anywhere, really. We we I'd learned to move quite a bit every year, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was no big deal, but. I think we feel settled here and, and, and mm-hmm. actually the point where yeah. we see more of a future here than we do in England. But so, no, we've, been, we've been very welcomed here. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I was going to ask, is there something that the Americans think about the British that they get wrong? Certain stereotypes or that they say to you and you think, oh, no, that's not how it is, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. Loads. <laughs> how long have you got? But there's this idea that we all stop every day at three o'clock for tea. <laughs> and i have to say to them no tea just goes on all day tea is a big thing but <laughs> it's not See,
0: like I, this... I have a cup here right now
1: <laughs> we can't live without it but but all our tea come from india anyway yeah. we're very grateful to india for giving us tea but uh, there's that they all think we they all want to do an english accent when you meet english when you meet people here and they meet you they first of all they love our accent and i've, I've been all over the world and To be honest, the English are not popular in a lot of places, (laughs) whether it's our bad tourists or our bad soccer fans leaving a bad legacy everywhere. We're not always popular. And and I've seen English tourists in other places just really let the country down. But (laughs) for some reason, here, everybody loves the English. I think it's something to do with the royal family, or, or I think we're seen as that kind of the old country. And the people will often say to me oh I could just listen to you all day and I, no one's ever said that to me in any other country so I think we have a huge advantage in terms of cultural situations in that people already welcoming us we're mm-hmm. not seen as intrusive foreigners we're seen more as oh some of it, it's nice to have some English people about mm-hmm. in movies and sitcoms there's often an English character now almost as if we feel very accepted in, in, in that way yeah
0: you're seeing more of them in the media
1: yeah definitely mm-hmm. um, yeah so What I mean and then people will try and do their English accent for me and I'll be honest with you it's not great but then <laughs> most people can't most English people struggle to do an American accent
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it was easy for you in a way to settle down in another country because like you said you've traveled before and it appears to me from what I know you and what you share that you're a fairly open-minded person and I think It takes a certain kind of personality to be open, to be okay with moving and settling down. But still, it's a huge move. And I was wondering how that shaped your faith or affected your relationship with God, having to live in another country.
1: Uh, I think it, it just makes you dependent on him. And you realize that. It's weird, really, because I don't have a lot of family back in England, but I do have two brothers in England. I have a sister in Australia, but we've all kind of moved around. And so I don't feel I have to see them or be with them a lot. Donna, on the other hand, does miss her family very much. She's very close to her brothers and sisters. She not long ago lost her mum. So she would often take trips back to see them. But as for me, I just feel that the older I get, I definitely am locking into that idea that we are aliens and strangers on this earth and that wherever you go, as long as you're with Christians, you, you're with your people. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's more a transference. My family now is is more, and this is no disrespect to my own family, but mm-hmm. it's more the people of God who, who I feel that these are the people I'm going to be with forever. and yeah, uh, So it doesn't really matter that. where I go. And the fascinating thing for us is, when we've travelled around, we always try and go to a church on Sunday wherever we are. So I've been to mm. church in Fiji. I went to a Navajo church one week when we were in Utah, and just these different cultural experiences in New Zealand, in Australia, places like this, where you realise that that being a Christian just transcends all cultures, and mm. and we do share one faith. And, and yeah. so
0: for me, and that you have a family wherever you go.
1: Yes, We are actually
0: Um, never alone because there's someone in every country almost who's a believer. And like you said, if you go to church there, and I've experienced that sometimes because in the U.S. we traveled around a lot. And sometimes we would go to a city that we were new to and go to worship that Sunday in a church and just feel like we belong, even though we don't know anyone.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I think that's (laughs) right. And and I think for us specifically, coming from East London, there was such a diversity of ethnicities in East London and Essex when I left. There'd been a big African influx. There was a lot of people coming in from Eastern Europe. There had always been a big Indian and Pakistani culture in my hometown. A lot of West Indians there. And then when we came to America, living in the Bay Area, (laughs) to be honest, it, it seemed pretty similar. Now, because of tech, there are so many cultures so yeah. it, it was never like I just lived in an area where there are only white British people, and I've moved to an area where there's only white American people. It, it's always been diverse, mm-hmm. and I think that's reflected in the churches I've been at. Yeah. So it, it's never felt it's never felt like a big shock to the system for me. Yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, talking about churches, <clears throat> excuse me, and Christian culture. Do you see a difference in how Christians worship or their attitudes between England and here in the
1: US? Sometimes, yeah, there are differences. I've, in England, when I worked in the as a portrait artist every summer in that town, I would attend a Reformed Baptist church, and then when I'd go back to my hometown, I would often attend a Pentecostal church. So I didn't have only one Christian cultural experience Mm -hmm. so when i've come here i'm noticing in a lot of churches that there is this kind of there was a group of churches in england called the fiec which was the fellowship of independent evangelical churches and and it became a kind of a broad thing and the churches a lot of churches now are becoming the same that they're singing the same kind of churches. They they seem to be the same length of service. The nature of the sermons is becoming similar. And so I think there's becoming this broadness around the world, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Everyone seems to be singing the same songs. I'm not always sure that's a great thing. If the pattern's good, then great, share it with everybody. But there are some things that I think that solid biblical teaching is maybe not as strong generally as it might once have been, uh, but that's not and that's in both countries. But then I also really notice one thing is how much people tie their politics to their faith and and a lot of people here in America, their politics is is very important to them. Now politics is important in England, but people don't talk about it so much and attach it to their faith. It's almost if you belong to one political party here or if you vote a certain way. I just sometimes feel, I wonder if people see that as their salvation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, our salvation's in Christ and and the politics is all well and good whichever way you vote. But it shouldn't ever come up to the same level as our faith in Jesus.
0: Yeah, amen to that. I agree. Now, going back to your personal life, tell us about your adoption story.
1: We got married quite late and and I was quite, I was older when I got married. Donna's seven years younger than me and and we got married in 2007 and we said straight away, neither of us are getting any younger, we'll we'll, we'll try for children straight away. I did ask her, she said I could talk about this, but sadly we had a lot of miscarriages and we could have even had as many as 15, we think. It was a hard thing, it's been very hard for her, but Donna's amazing, She, she, she deals with it, she processes it. But we desperately wanted children. And we eventually said, let's look at the uh, adoption situation. Now, what she didn't want to do was do a foster adopt where one day she might have to give the child back again. Now, it's always good when, when children can be reconciled to the parents. But I think because she'd lost so many children, the thought of having to give up another one was too much for her. So we only looked at children where parental rights had been terminated. Mm. And which means that you were going to be looking at children. something serious must have happened in the family for the children to have been removed so we knew that we might be getting kids with a bit more baggage and so we looked at a lot and I think we were in the process for from the moment we first applied it was about 18 months that we finally were selected for these two Jonathan and Lucia. and when we met them It was a bit crazy. The social workers brought them to a a McDonald's and uh, there was one of those play structures, those play zones. And it was a terrible wet day. I I had um, sinusitis pretty badly. And then straight away, these two kids just disappeared up the tubes of this play structure. And I thought, there's no way. I'm I'm not going in there after them. So we just waited for them to come out. But we could hear them punching and kicking each other and just screaming. And I looked at Donna and said, yeah, this is going to be fun. And they came out eventually, and the little girl I see her. She was five at the time. She pointed at me. She said, I want the boy to chase me. I I was the boy, because I quite like that. She said, I want the boy to chase me. So I had to chase her running around this play structure, and I tagged her. And then she just screamed at me, like, why did you tag me? I said, I thought that's what we were playing. And then she said, right, now chase me again. So I had to do this, and every time I tagged her, she'd scream. Meanwhile, Jonathan was popping her balloon and and just screaming about everything and i looked at donna and I, I said no way this is we both work with children but this is way beyond anything we've ever experienced before we're not cut out for this and then finally i said look let's just get through this two-hour visit and then we will have mm. to cut kind of it say <coughs> thanks me. but no thanks we don't think we can do this and then finally we sat down for a happy meal <laughs> And I sat next to Jonathan, and I had to wedge him in so he didn't escape. And then uh, he was six, and then Asia came under the table suddenly, (laughs) as as you do. And then she came and sat on my side, and both of them snuggled into me and started feeding me fries. And and my heart just melted at that moment. And if it hadn't been for that moment, I don't know if we would have, I think Mm. we might have carried on searching. But I looked at Donna and said, that's enough to give us one more opportunity. With Let's try this one more time and so we did another visit again that was pretty disastrous then pretty soon after that we did a 24-hour visit where they came to stay <laughs> that was hard work as well and then i think two days after that they came to live with us. so it, it, it happens that fast um and that was such a step of faith because we thought wow these children need parents uh, their needs are almost beyond what we can cope with but we're prepared to allow god to to help us with this And we had a huge team of helpers. The social services were great. The therapists were great. They provided so much help. And it's been good. It's been very good. Difficult, but but a worthwhile journey. Yeah.
0: And thank you for sharing. Going back to your teaching videos, they're unique. Can you explain how you came up with the concept and the thought process behind them? How do you come up with those stories?
1: Again, just a little backstory. When I was at Bible college in the, the 90s in England, people knew I was an artist. And one time there was this girl who wanted to do a, a chapel, like a chapel assembly for all the students. And she wanted three artists to paint three pictures simultaneously, all about celebrating the person of Jesus. And so she said, would I do something about the suffering of Jesus? And I had four minutes to paint this big four foot by three foot painting I thought how am I going to do that in four minutes I thought I've got a great idea I thought I'm just gonna paint the hand of Jesus a bit like like that just a hand huge with a nail in it and I thought I'll just do that I did this quickly and the music was playing and then the music finished I thought a bit early and the other two artists sat down so I thought I better sit down as well and then the girl her husband said to me aren't you going to finish what you were doing?" I said, I thought we'd finished. He said, no, you've got to go back and finish. Because what I was going to do was then paint blood around the nail and the blood was going to drip down the page. So I then get up again on my own and finish this. And everyone thought that was designed, that we'd actually arranged it to be like that. So the blood is now dripping off the page and the whole mood of this chapel changes and people start crying and there's this, something has happened in the room and it was... Scary because everybody was now weeping with each other, and they were like holding each other, and and, I, and that was the moment I realised the power of what art can do, art with music. And so I, I thought, wow, that really opened up my eyes to what the potential was. I was working at, as a student. I was working at a local church, and they asked me one week to do a kids' talk in the church, and I did. Just I read something, and I lost the kids within thirty seconds. I could tell that I could tell how bored yeah. they were. And then I thought, well, I'm not doing that again. And then they said to me, well, why don't you paint while you talk? So I did that. And then suddenly those same kids that I didn't want to know all sat round by my feet, hanging on my every word. So that was the beginning of it. And then I just developed different stories. I, I, I wanted to do things that had some kind of reveal moment. So, so hmm. sometimes you're looking at a picture, you think you know what you're seeing, but, but all kinds of things are going to change on the picture. And so I've just developed this over 25 years now, and I take it to schools. I was in 13 schools in England, and they're like, you'd be doing the whole school assembly. In England, you could actually take a, a gospel message to a state school. So there'd be like 500 kids hanging on your every word, and it was wonderful. And then I came here, and that's what I wanted to establish here. So I'm in several schools now. But the fascinating thing is, although I designed them primarily for kids, and the kids would all sit on the front row in every church I've worked at here. You find now that the adults are really getting a lot out of it as well. And, and the adults yeah. would come up to me afterwards and say, we're getting as much out of this as the kids are. Which is great because I, I wanted it to be more of a universal message. And so now we don't call it a kid's talk. We call it the big picture. In my church, but it's become a fixture every week. So it's an unusual thing. I, I've never seen anyone else do this sort of thing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <that's> absolutely. <laughs> but you have to watch one, I think, to get the idea of it. But the ideas come to me. I just think to myself, I just get ideas. I pray a lot for creativity. And I, I was going asked,
0: to ask that that as an artist, what tips do you have for other artists, especially in the Christian space?
1: I think you've got to have a desire to want to do it. I've always mm. worked on the premise that. Like Paul said, I resolve to know nothing except Christ and His crucified. So whatever I do, whether it's writing, whether it's artwork, everything is designed to give the message of the gospel in. And, and what I've in, been encouraged by lately is a lot of the kind of influential people in my life at the moment have all said to me that I have an ability to take a deep concept and reduce it to a simple format. So mm. it's understandable. And the artwork definitely helps that. Because then, even if they don't quite catch what I'm saying, the idea of the artwork is that sums up, they can remember what the picture was, and then hopefully they can that, that will take them to the connection of what I was talking about as well. So I pray for creativity, because I've done about 400 of these now, and there's probably over 200 on YouTube. And But then, the great thing about the Bible is that every story is so amazing, so there's no yeah. shortage of uh, material. and sometimes I, I stick very closely to the bible story sometimes there's a concept that comes out and i try and mm-hmm. illustrate the concept but what i love about it especially as a from a writing perspective is every week you're telling a complete story there has to be a beginning the mm-hmm. middle an end an application you have yeah. five minutes to do it so you really have to hone down your editing skills because you can't waffle on <laughs> and <laughs> i, I probably, think the, I the fact now. that
0: Yeah. No, the fact that you're doing it consistently also Mm. helps improve the craft, both with your uh, art and your writing. And that's also so important for artists these days, that not that we are under pressure to churn out, but that we keep working at it and Mm. we consistently serve our audience. Yeah. So that's where also I think creativity kind of gets better, craft gets better.
1: Definitely, Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think for me, I start with the ending. So I think, Mm. what's the takeaway? What do I want people to get out of this story? Or not even what I want to get out, but what was that Bible story trying to get people? Why was that written? The person who wrote that story, what did they want their readers or their hearers to get out of it? So I try and find what the conclusion was. That's where the big reveal in the artwork Mm. and then i kind of work backwards from there so i bit it's like comedians who say when they write a joke they start with the punchline then they write the rest and of then the they joke. go back mm. so it's a bit like that really and whatever it's so exciting to finally land on a on some kind of vehicle <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> where you can represent so much of who you are so yeah this way absolutely I to use my artwork I get I love paper engineering so I love that I've, I think I've got a sense of humor so I try and put the humor in I love talking about Jesus I love sharing the gospel <clears throat> I love the trickery of things I like the. I like to present and for me it's so wonderful to finally think oh this might be who I am this it, might it's be it's so
0: uniquely you yeah <laughs> and so that gives you more satisfaction the more you pour into it yeah
1: but it was um, a long time coming. People in my early days, I said, I'd like to use my artwork for God. They would say things like paint a nice picture and then mm. put a text on the bottom. I thought, I don't to, <laughs> that's not me. But to yeah. f- to finally, this has evolved over a lot of years. I, mm. And what I try and do now, in the early days, I would flip sheets over so that mm. the first picture would be something, then the second picture. But now I set myself the challenge that the whole story must be told on one picture. Now, that picture might change a bit but there's my challenge. <clears throat> but it all has to be on one picture. That's why we call it the big picture.
0: Very nice. That's awesome. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Malcolm, about your artwork, the creative process, and also sharing about the adoption and your immigrant experience. Thank you so much. It was such a privilege and honor to have you on this podcast.
1: It's been great fun. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Far From Home a podcast that encourages biblical perspectives on immigration and inspires faith in action. I'm your host, Mabel Ninen. I would like to invite you to join our private Facebook group, Far From Home Podcast, a place where you can share your thoughts and comments. I also share extra scenes and behind-the-scenes snippets on this Facebook group. I can't wait to meet you there and listen to what you have to say. If you want to know more about Far From Home or about me, go to mabelninen.com. Some episodes of this podcast are available in video format on my YouTube channel, Mabel Ninen. Be sure to check that out if you're interested in watching the interesting conversations I have with the guests on this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'm so glad you joined us today. Until next time, goodbye.